Amen. So uh, we're in uh, the book of Joshua, and we're seeing uh, Joshua in the continuation of the conquering of the land as uh, they are uh, moving through and possessing what the Lord has called them uh, to have and to care for. And uh, as we begin in chapter 12, uh, it says, these are the kings. Now, I want you to take particular notice of the fact that it's saying these are the kings that we're talking about. We're going to talk about the land and the division of the land. But the Lord makes the point here of the oversight and authority, the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the eastern Jordan plain. So as they left and came out crossing over the Red Sea, wilderness of sin, coming to the Jordan River before they crossed, uh, two and a half tribes chose to remain on that eastern side of the Jordan River. And there's a great conflict between Moses and and the people, the Lord, Moses, and people uh, who chose to stay uh, on that side of the land. And there's a, a, a very unfortunate history uh, with Reuben, Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh that stayed on that eastern side. They didn't have the protective barrier of the Jordan River. They were not collectively assembled with the rest of the nine and a half tribes. And so as things deteriorated and the Syrians invaded, they were the first to be easily conquered and taken away into captivity. They didn't have the natural barrier of the Jordan River. They didn't have the collective protection of the rest of the body of the nation of Israel. And spiritually, there's quite a picture there for us because the two and a half tribes choose to take the land that they desire rather than the land that God had promised them. Okay, They experience blessing in that. They are still God's people, but they also suffer the consequences of not listening to the Lord and following the Lord for his fulfillment and his plan. So another aspect to this is as New Testament Christians, we're looking at things through a spiritual lens. Um, you know, you look around, you watch the news and you sort of get agitated and think like you want to go fight somebody. And uh, in the end, uh, the New Testament uh, gives us a different frame of mind. There is a fight to engage in. There are people and there are situations to conquer and defeat, uh, but it's through the spiritual realm that we accomplish these things. Okay, uh, taking up arms is going to be counterproductive to what the Lord uh, has us to do. So I will just remind us of what Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 says. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and uh, the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not an earthly conflict, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, 
against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, and I would encourage you to continue to read forward. I'll just end with this. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. And then 14, he says, stand, therefore. You have to take a stand. The world we're in, you, you know, being passive is, is very dangerous, not only for yourself, but for all that follow us. Uh, the world, the generations that are coming, you know, a, a passive, listen to me, hear me in this, let this sink in. The church being passive for decades and allowing these things to happen has brought us to the place we are at today, right? This whole attitude of, you know, uh, politics is somehow evil and we shouldn't get involved, okay? I'm not of the mindset. The scripture is not of the mindset of like kingdom theology. Like we're going to conquer all of these things and we'll set up the kingdom and Jesus will come and reign. That's not our mentality. I don't see that in the scripture at all. But Jesus said you are salt and light. Right, salt, preservative, light, that which keeps decay from happening. We are supposed to be the preservative in the world, right? You're especially timid, don't want to raise a public voice in any way. Stay on your knees, pray. This is a spiritual battle. There is a great conflict we are engaged in. If you want to run uh, for you know, whatever, school council, city council, mayor, uh, you know, governor, president will help you, please. Uh, We need godly people in these places. The voice needs to be heard. We do need to resist the deterioration. It's, It's an unfortunate thing to see our culture deteriorating the way it is. Passive approach has been a great contributor uh, to that. So um, the kings here that are conquered land and the children of Israel defeated uh, the land of these kings comprised Israel's land on the eastern side of the Jordan, as we said. And that's what we're going to see here described. Uh, This list only seems tedious uh, to us because we don't live in the land. If, If you are living in the land, Uh, then you say, yeah, I am in the place where these things took place, where these kings ruled and reigned, and they were conquered, and now we possess the land. Spiritually, you, whether you think of it or not, you have a list already of kings that have been conquered. The rulers and the powers and the principalities that ruled over you, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, there has been conquest. That there are things, and, and the areas that you have conquered may not be the areas that I have conquered, and vice versa. You know, some may seem more heroic when you hear the description of what has been conquered in a person's life. In the end, they were all enemies, right, of the kingdom of God. Whether you were some super criminal and you surrendered your life to Christ, or you were just some super student and decided, you know, in high school or college that you wanted to surrender your life to Christ. The Lord's victory in these areas belongs to the Lord, and it's a great testimony to him and to you. 
the, the fact that you've surrendered and the Lord now reigns in your heart and mind. So this is very significant when you consider it. We'll look at a few things as we move along. We get this description, one, and then it tells us again, and one, and one. So it's just kind of an odd way of describing it. One king was Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon and ruled half of Gilead from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, from the middle of that river, even as far as the river Jabbok, which is the border of the Ammonites and the eastern Jordan plain, to the Sea of Kenneroth, as far as the Sea of Arabah, that is the Salt Sea, the road to Beth Jehashmeth, and southward below the slopes of Pisgah. Again, it doesn't mean a lot to you, but it's very significant to the people who not only then possessed the land, but possessed the land today, right? We hear great arguments about, oh, this should be a, you know, two-state solution. We're going to give a portion to the Palestinians, and we're going to give a portion to the Israelis. You know, when you listen to the news, when you listen to the worldly approach, um, you, you have to understand, I, I think most of you do, but you have to understand that the political solution that is constantly being presented that way regarding Israel it can be described this way. It, if the Arabs, which is what we're talking about when we say Palestinians, because there are no such thing as Palestinians. That's not my opinion. It's not because I have a certain prejudice. It's because when Rome destroyed, defeated Israel, drove them out of the land, they transplanted Arab nations into the land, and they named the land after Israel's enemies, the Philistines. So it is known as Palestine as a form of punishment that, it, that Rome imposed upon the nation of Israel. Okay, uh, you know, the people that are there didn't possess the land previously. They were placed in there by Rome to try and make, you know, subjects to the empire of Rome and give those people, gift those people land. So if the Arabs, if the Palestinians right now were to lay down their arms, there would be peace in the Middle East immediately. And we've seen that. Israel always cooperates with whatever treaty is peaceable. On the other hand, if Israel lays down its arms, there would be no more Israel in the Middle East. They would immediately be wiped out. All of their neighbors, including the Palestinians that live within their borders, have said without question, there is no compromise. We want their words, complete annihilation of the nation of Israel. Now, there have been some 36 treaties that have been put forward. Nine of them, Israel was extremely cooperative with, as, try, as far as trying to create a two-nation agreement there, a two-state agreement. And it always fails, every single time, on the part of the Palestinians, the Arabs that live within their borders and the surrounding nations. Point being, the land belongs to Israel. 
That's, that's what we're reading here. We're getting specific outlines, specific borders, specific locations. This is God's people's land. In fact, the way the scripture describes it is it doesn't even belong to Israel. It belongs to God. And God has placed his people in the land. So we want to be very careful about listening to anything that the world may have to say in regard to these things. The other king was Og, king of Bashan, and his territory, who was the remnant of the giants who dwelt in Ashtaroth and Edri. Now, this remainder of the giants, or the remnant of the giants, it's been criticized in the scripture that it would speak that way as though giants were merely mythological. And the end of the discussion is uh, there have been many archaeological digs done in this region and otherwise around Mer Mount Ararat is quite interesting. Uh, don't mean to create any controversy. You can talk to me about it afterwards. It's probable that Noah was a giant based upon things we see in the scripture, uh, in uh, the country where the ark, uh, according to the scripture, landed there on Mount Ararat, they have an iron bed that is 11 feet long that they say was Noah's bed that came off from the ark. Uh, they have femur bones from the kneecap uh, to the hip socket that are nearly three and a half feet long. Okay, I mean, that's a massive human being that, you know, you're, you're getting up into, you know, depending on which ones we're talking about, 9, 10, 11, greater than 11 feet tall. Now, this ceiling right here is not even 10 feet tall. Imagine someone in this room that would have to crouch over. Um, <clears throat> difficult for you to imagine. I would recommend two books. And both written by Emmanuel Velikovsky. One is Worlds in Upheaval. The other is Worlds in Collision. And he documents many things about this world that we have discovered that give us clear indication the world was very different in the ancient past than it is today. Uh, and many of you have heard me describe there. We've found uh, uh, dragonflies with 52-inch wingspans. So... You know, like I always say, that would take you right off your motorcycle at that point. You know, so you'd have to have a different type of windshield. Something. I mean, it's it's serious. You know, what I'm saying asparagus ferns, 15 feet high, right in the fossil record. Uh, you know, there there are things. That, you know, the Andes mountains uh, above 21,000 feet. Uh, there are terraced garden spots where they grew vegetation, their root structures still in the ground, way above the tree line, way above the vegetation. The world was different is the point, okay? How does that fit in? What does this mean? Uh, we could spend a lot of time examining all of those things. What I'm saying to you is when you come across something in the scripture that says like there were giants in the land, you don't want to just throw that out thinking that somehow that's a, you know, mythology uh, created you know, by the authors of the scripture. We have strong evidence on many regards that these things were, in fact, this way. So here, uh, these were the remnants of uh, those that were uh, 
the, the giants uh, and, and uh, had been conquered. Um, so, of course, I lost my place. Was that verse 5? Where was I? Five. Okay. Bashan, his territory, was a remnant of the giants, dwelt in Ashtaroth and Edri, uh, reigned over Mount Hermon, uh, over Salka, over all Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and uh, the Machaethites, and over half of Gilead to the border of Sion, king of Heshbon. These Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, was given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Reminds me, as I read it, you're probably aware, um, this region, this land, becomes known as the region of the Gadareans. And if you think about Jesus' ministry when he crosses over and comes to the land of the Gadareans, he finds two things upon arrival. Massive herds of pigs uh, that technically should not be in Israeli territory. They're an unclean animal. Uh, and secondly, profoundly demon-possessed men who uh, have you know, great terror for the people uh, that they are affecting and living amongst. So... Verse 7, and these are the kings of the country which Joshua the children and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan on the west from Belgad in the valley of Lebanon as far as Mount Halak and the ascent of Seir which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their division in the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, on the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the south, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the, De uh, the Jebusites. So again, this only seems tedious because it's not our land. If it was our neighborhood, if it was where we were living, uh, we would have a very you know, distinct respect for what's written here. Verse 9, the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jamath, one. Yeah, if you're, you're saying, why, why the one? Why are they putting that in there? Because there were kings that ruled over two regions at a time, and there were also uh, you know, two kings or more that ruled over one region. So sometimes you have a conglomerate of kings, five kings that rule over a specific area. So when we get these names and it says one, it's not merely redundant. It's literally telling us there was only one ruler in that area. The king of Jamath, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Deber, one. The king of of Geber one, the king of Hor uh, excuse me Horma one, the king of Arab one, the king of Libna one, the king of Adullam one, the king of uh, excuse me Makeda one, the king of Bethel one, the king of Tapua one, the king of Hefer one, the king of Aphak one. The king of Lasheron, one. The king of Madon, one. 
the king of Hazor, won. The king of Shimron, Miron, won. The king of Akshaf, won. The king of Teanach, won. The king of Megiddo, won. The king of Kedesh, won. The king of Jachnim in Carmel, won. The king of Dor in the heights of Dor, won. The king of the people of Gilgal, won. The king of Zir Tirzah, won. All the kings, 31. It's pretty remarkable that they conquered 31 kings, 31 regions. And again, we're going to read that it was the Lord that conquered them, and Israel was with him. That's how they accomplished that. I would jump at this moment to what we have in our country and our freedom and the wars of the past and the things that gave us what we have, which honestly are not appreciated. Um, we sometimes you know, think about, you know, here comes July 4th. We think about, okay, right, Revolutionary War. Uh, it's an amazing thing that we see that occurred and gave us uh, such great freedom. Might want to take the time to jump forward to the War of 1812 and see that that was also a revolutionary war that we nearly lost as a result uh, of uh, the British trying to take the Mississippi and thereby control the entire continent. Uh, so there are some things there. Uh, you, you can uh, find a small booklet uh, called uh, Guns. For General Washington, that's really a remarkable story. Single story from the Revolutionary War where Boston Harbor was uh, completely besieged. Uh, they actually occupied the town of Boston and were thereby controlling the East Coast uh, with their Navy. If you didn't want to come to a history lesson, stay with me. It's really quite interesting. Um, if you get the opportunity to go to Fort Ticonderoga, at the bottom of Lake Champlain, the headwaters of Hudson, um, that fort had been fought over, won and lost repeatedly between the French, the Indians, and the British, and some other small forces uh, that at different times uh, captured. A beautiful fort, uh, if you get to go there, uh, lots uh, to see museum-like uh, uh, experiences. But the thing is, by the time Boston Harbor is occupied by the British, who are going to control New England if they control Boston, uh, Fort Ticonderoga is just loaded with armament. But it's occupied by a, a little more than two dozen French soldiers at the time. So um, not that, again, you wanted a history lesson, but the land we have and the freedom we have here to meet this morning and worship Jesus Christ. Okay, So... Uh, uh, Fort uh, or General Knox, uh, um, uh, three other generals, and um, why can't I think of the guy's name? Who was the Benedict Arnold? Right, uh, traveled there, funding the whole thing themselves. Right, no government paying them. They took their great wealth, went there. Um, Benedict Arnold actually led the charge <clears throat> up over a cliff face, went through the walls, and they conquered. Uh, the men that were there uh, pretty, pretty readily. They, they then disassembled all of the artillery that was there, massive guns, scaled them down over the cliff face, loaded them on barges. All of these barges had been rented from locals 
<coughs> two of them were sinking as they loaded them on board. It was a bailing process as they took them all the way down to the Poconos Mountains, right, where they, one of them was literally below water. They were dragging it ashore as they got it there, load them on sleds, pull them with oxen as winter begins to set in through the Poconos Mountains. At one point, one of the largest artillery pieces went through the ice on a river. Uh, it was Knox that refused to leave it there. He went upstream, cut through the ice, built log flumes, and poured the water from the river, upriver, on top of the ice that was there, and overnight built four and a half feet of ice, freezing it there, built a huge uh, lifting apparatus on top of that ice, cut through the ice, put men in the water, in the river, you guys, right? Life under threat, lash onto this thing. They spent days helping the men recover from hypothermia, having been in the water. Pull this thing out of the water, put it back on sleds, haul it the rest of the way to George Washington. The British are about to take complete control. They arrive in the middle of the night and they begin digging into the north embankment there in Boston Harbor and setting these guns into place. At sunrise, they're not quite finished. So they get the whole British feet below. So they send a contingent to the southern shore with small cannons and muskets, and they open fire on the southern shore at the British fleet. The entire British fleet swings around and begins to open fire on the southern shore. And then at 8 a.m., George Washington is complete, and they just put two big volleys of all of their cannons, boom, out over the top of the British fleet. And the British fleet says, holy crud, and rows ashore and signs the surrender. Miracles continuously. You know, George, uh, Benedict Arnold's attempt to betray George Washington, miraculously thwarted by a man who just knew this messenger who was trying to get through uh, was not trustworthy, right? And it was when they finally stripped him down to his underwear and they took his socks off that they found the plans wrapped around his legs to go in uh, to West Point, capture and kill George Washington. One man's, you know, gut feeling, his the Holy Spirit speaking to him, telling him, do not let this guy go. So, you know, when we read this, you know, that's a little closer to home, right? I relay those stories roughly, and we, we kind of appreciate, wow, that's some cool stuff, man. That, you know, I'm able to worship Jesus Christ in freedom today. How about this? <clears throat> you cannot preach the gospel in England today. I don't know if you're aware of that. You cannot say definitively there is one true living God from the pulpit in England. You cannot say Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except by him in England today. I'm very grateful for where we are right now. You know, just read an article yesterday about a worker in Canada who successfully sued the company that he was working for because they fired him for wearing a cross at work. 
They have specific measurements about how big your cross can be, and at work you can't wear them at all. You can wear your Muslim pendant, you can wear any number of other things, but Christianity cannot be openly displayed in Canada. Uh, while I was reading that article, I found another one where they did the, almost the same thing to a man who had worked 20 years as a factory supervisor in Australia, simply wearing a cross. The, the attitude is shifting, folks. And what you have here today, when we're reading about these kings conquered, I'm telling you, you got to take to heart what we have in our freedom to worship Jesus Christ. And I, I say again, take the opportunity to get involved. You know, all of our talking today about going into public and talking to people and sharing your faith with people. One more time here. Let me convict you very deeply. I'm, I'm, I'm swinging at you right now, right? If you're comfortable in your seat, um, I'm putting it on every one of us. 80% of the people who are invited to church come to church. All you got to do is open your mouth and say, hey, why don't you come to church with me sometime? 80% of the people who are invited come. That's a pretty alarming statistic. right? That, that should mean that our churches should be full because we should be inviting people all the time. Yeah, I don't mean to be hurtful towards us all, but we've got to open our mouths. We've got to share. We've got to bring people in. It's a spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 1 the prophet says, listen to me, you who follow after righteousness. That's us here. No, you know, no matter what you think of yourself in your spiritual walk, you are in pursuit of righteousness. How do I know? You're in church. Okay, so here you are. To some degree, maybe very, very strongly, maybe very, very faintly, you are here in pursuit of righteousness. So those who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn, and the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Remember what the Lord has conquered in your life. Look back, go through, spend the time to meditate on what kind of creep you were before you surrendered your life to Christ. The, the degree to which he has conquered those things and taking ground for himself in your life, in your heart, in your mind, in your behavior, in your family, that, that's a tremendous victory for him, and that can spread to your neighbor. You can share your faith with others, and you can see these things done in other people's lives. So I, I really got to hurry up because I got to get done before three. So let's. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 13, verse 1. Now, Joshua was old, advanced in years. That's kind of cruel to say. But then it says, and the Lord said to him, you are old, advanced in years. Sometimes the truth is just the truth, right? And there remains very much land yet to be possessed. Oh, here, hear this, hear this. Here is God talking to a very old man saying, don't rest on your laurels. There is a tremendous amount of work still to be done. Okay, so, so if you have that mindset, like, uh, you know, the glory days are gone. I say to you, the glory days are ahead. And it's not a pep talk. 
Okay, your enemy would love to convince you that you're worthless. Love to convince you that. Why? <clears throat> because you have learned so much, especially those of us that have decades and years and years and years and years behind us. We have learned so much. R remember, right, the, the pit from which we're dug, uh, the things that the Lord has brought you through. Remember those first days? Okay, can, can you remember the first six months you were a Christian? Wow, were you a goofball. Man, I just, the things that we thought, the things that we tried to do, the things. Now look at the maturity, right, that, that the Lord has created how needed is that in the church today? As we read the articles, as we look around, as we see the condition of the church, it is that seasoned maturity, that seasoned leadership that is needed in the church. That's what's needed. Right? Uh, we, we love the younger generation and what's happening. Right, but, but as I describe week after week about some of the treacherous things that are happening, Right. Music industry. I've talked a lot about really poisonous stuff coming out of a lot of venues in those areas. Uh, in in uh, Psalm, David takes the seasoned war hardened generals and he puts them in charge over the young worship leaders to teach them how to lead worship. It seems odd. You know, you can sort of look at it and think. Like, oh, great, we're just going to be listening to, you know, old fogey music or something. No, no, he wanted them to develop new music and style, but he understood, I can't just let these young men, what, where was he drawing that from? I guarantee you he was drawing it from reflecting upon himself. That he was thinking about some of those songs that he wrote when he was a very young boy in the field tending sheep. And as the years passed and he read it and he just burned it, you know what I'm saying? Because he realized oh, that's, that's not correct. The doctrine's not correct. My emotion was all tangled up. I was singing from the flesh. I wasn't singing from the spirit. The need for that strong veteran seasoned type leadership in our churches today. There's an attitude. There's always an attitude. We don't need the old fogies. And they throw them out. They go down the road and they start a new church. We're going to be the hip, cool new church. And then you find out that what they're teaching and the things that are going on are really weird, really strange, far off from well, you know standard doctrine of biblical thinking. Uh, so, so here, you're old, but there remains very much land yet to be possessed. This is the land that yet remains. All the territory of the Philistines and all of the Geshurites from Sihor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron, northward, which is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, the Ashdodites, the Eshkelonites, the Gittites, the Ekronites, also the Avites from the south, all the land of the Canaanites. Meari, uh, that belongs to the Sidonians as far as Aphak, the border of the Amorites, the land of the, uh, where am I, Sebathites, all Lebanon toward the sunrise from Baal Gad below the mountain 
Hermon, as far as the entrance of Hamath, all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon, as far as the brook Mizrafoth, and the Sidonians, all the Sidonians, them I will drive out from before you or before the children of Israel. Notice that I will drive them out. Yes, you're going to be involved. Yes, you're going to have to fight. But isn't that a great concept when you're facing struggles, when you're facing difficulties, that yes, I'm going to go after this thing, this area, this accomplishment, but the Lord is going to do it and I just get to ride his coattails into it. That, that, that is a great way of looking at these things. Only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. So now we see the land divided with the other half of the tribe of the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses had given them beyond the Jordan eastward as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given them, and from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the town that is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain of Medaba, as far as Dibin, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the border of the children of Ammon, Gilead and the border of the Geshurites and the Maacathites, all of Mount Hermon and all Bashan, as far as uh, Silka, all the kingdom of Og of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and Edrei, who remained of the remnant of the giants, for Moses had defeated and cast them out, or cast out these. Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maacathites. Now, this is difficult, uh, but the Geshurites and the Maacathites dwelt among the Israelites until this day. David, King David, later married a princess of Geshur, and she was the mother of Absalom. So any of you that know the story of Absalom and his trying to overthrow his father, remember when he killed his half-brother, he fled back to Gesher, uh, and that is where he actually developed his whole plot to come back to Israel, worm his way in, win the hearts of the people over, and then try to overthrow David, his father, as king. Imagine if they had just driven out the Gesherites and not had them to deal with. Whenever the Lord says, this is what I want you to do, when we don't accomplish it, it's always detrimental. Leave those things in place, perform a compromise, allow for things to dwell. We end up paying the price. It's it's really very difficult there. Uh, We also see uh, that uh, the Maathites Maathites, uh, may have come from Maaka, uh, mentioned in Genesis 22, 24, uh, whose nephew of Abraham later, when uh, Sheba rebelled against David, he fled and may have taken refuge in one of the cities of uh, the Maacathites. You can see that in 2 Samuel 20, verses 14 and 15. So uh, verse 
14. We're going to get through this. Only the tribe of Levi. He had given no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. The Lord uh, provided for the tribe of Levi. And it's interesting because, uh, I, I, I mean, it's a quick summary, but the end of the issue is it was their incredible violence as a tribe that caused God to curse them from not being in the inheritance as the other tribes. But what he did is he reserved them unto himself, not that he appreciated their violence, uh, but that he understood, I need to draw them close to me and cause them to serve me so that this behavior is purged from them. So they become a peaceable people, so that they serve the nation of Israel, rather than being bloodthirsty and destructive the way they were, they needed to be worshipers of God. Um, maybe some of you know exactly what I'm talking about in your own life. The way the Lord takes us from our insanity and converts us into a minister so that we can lead others in worshiping uh, the Lord there. Verse 15, Moses had given to the tribe of the children of Reuben an inheritance according to their families. Their territory was Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon. And the city that is in the midst of the ravine, all the plain of Medaba, Heshbon, and all the cities that are in the plain, Dibon, uh, Bamoth, Baal, Beth, Baal, Meon, Jahaz, uh, Kedemoth. I know you're so interested in all these names. Mephatha, uh, Kirjath Jerum, or Kirjathim, uh, Sidma, Zerith, uh, Shera, all the mountains of the valley, Beth Peor, the slopes of Pisgah, Beth Jeshemoth, all the cities of the plain, and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses had struck with the princes of Midian. Uh, Evi, uh, Rechem, Zer, Her, Reba, uh, who were princes of Sihon dwelling in the country. The children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, son of Beor, the soothsayer among those who were killed by them. Uh, Balaam was the one who was uh, coming uh, to prophesy for King Balak curses upon the nation of Israel and uh, the donkey he was riding on could see the angel who was going to kill them and, uh, you know, steers off course, crushes his foot against the wall. And now Balaam's having an argument with a donkey. You always know you're off course when you're arguing with a donkey. And uh, the donkey essentially says, look, um, I can see the angel with the flaming sword that's about to kill us. And I would prefer not to die today is essentially what he says. And uh, so Balaam learns not to curse Israel uh, he goes and prophesies, but in the end, he teaches King Balak how to trick the nation of Israel into sin, sexual and idolatrous sin, and then they are conquered because God removes his protection in his favor because they've fallen into sin. So when they finally go to war over that, they kill Balaam uh, as a result, a necessity in that. And the border of the children of Reuben was the bank of the Jordan. This was the inheritance of the children of Reuben, according to their families, the cities and their villages. Moses also had given an inheritance to the tribe of Gad, to the children of Gad, according to their families. Their territory was 
Jazer and all the cities of Gilead, half of the land of the Amorites as far as Aror, which is before Rabbah, and from Heshbon to Ramoth, Mizpah, uh, Bedomim, and from Mahanaim to the border of Deber, and the land, or excuse me, and in the valley, Beth Harem, Beth Nimra, Succoth, Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, with the Jordan as its border, as far as the edge of the Sea of Kinnereth, on the other side of the Jordan east. This is the inheritance of the children of Gad, according to their families, the cities, and their villages. Just a little more, hang with me. Moses also had given an inheritance to half the tribe of Manasseh. It was half the tribe of the children of Manasseh, according to their families. Their territory was from Mahanaim, all Bashan, all the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan. Sixty cities, half of Gilead, Ashtaroth, Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og, Bashan, where the children of Makir, the son of Manasseh, half the tribes of the children of Makir, according to their families. Verse 32, these are the areas which Moses had distributed as an inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward, the tribe of Levi. Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, as he had said to them. I'll give you two closing verses in regard to that last statement. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, as God is sending Abram, whose name has not been changed to Abraham yet, as he's sending him, the Lord promises him many things, but in particular in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid. That's always awesome. When you're dealing with life, period, what, what is your issue? You know, marriage, finances, health, education, career, you know, you name it, whatever you're dealing with, the tendency is fear. We don't know, we're worried, we're concerned, we're trusting God, and yet in proceeding forward, the unknown leaves us unstable. God gives the promise, do not be afraid. That's a promise. It's a command, but it's a promise. Do not be afraid. Why? Because of what he says next. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. God is our shield and our exceedingly great reward. For, for all of the inheritance we just read about, right? You got your own inheritance. What does that mean? It may be, in your eyes, very small. But you have a sphere of influence, you have people who listen. You have people that you minister to, people you have to listen to. That's your territory. I, I can't possess your territory, right? I, people say that uh, to me frequently. Boy, I wish I could you know, bring you into work with me. I wish I could bring you into my class with me. You're there. God has placed you there. That's your territory. You can conquer it with God. He is your great reward. If you will focus on the fact that the Lord is your great reward, not the terror, not Tory, not the people, not all of those things, God is. Then you'll have the confidence of his protection and his provision in those circumstances. 
Let God be a great voice. Well, it's not me. That's for other people. I'm nothing special. You know, there are ministers and then there's me. No, no. Hear this last set of verses. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, not that he was the very first resurrected, but that he was the most significant and the most important. He was the chief one. Why? Because all resurrection comes through him. So he is the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And here it is. And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You are a king, a queen, and a priest. Priestess in the kingdom of God. You know, if you're struggling with that right now, oh, wait a minute, you know, women and authority and leadership and pastors, and what are you doing here, right? In the kingdom of God, there is neither male nor female. We have a position in Christ that is royal priesthood. If all you know is John 3.16, then you've got the whole gospel message, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's all you got to share with people. You don't have to have some complex knowledge of anything. What were you before you met Christ? Christ conquered all of that, right? For some of us, it's completely unspeakable what we were before we met Christ. Whatever you were before you met Christ, John 3.16 included, that's your gospel message. Share it with the world. There's great conquest. There's great freedom in this. The kingdom of God is contained in your heart and in your testimony. Amen? Amen. Well, thank you for being patient. That's where we'll leave off for today. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Lord God, we are very grateful for the history of Israel and the way that it ministers to us, the way that it speaks to us and tells us what you are doing in our lives and what you will do in our lives. Help us to be men and women that recognize you are our great reward, that we would find our fulfillment. We would find our joy. We would find all that you want to do in us, in you. Help us to abide in you. Help us to dwell upon you. Bless us, keep us, watch over us, use us, protect us, provide for us until we are together again. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.